0: Welcome to another Outbreak podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave. I'm an Army Surgical Trainee, Basic Responder at a Mountain Rescue Doctor based in Pitlochry. Today, joining me, we have Eric Pirrie. Eric's spent over 30 years working in the hills as a mountain guide and has been a member of Cairngorm Mountain Rescue Team since 1982, during which time he's completed innumerable rescues in some of the harshest weather conditions pretty much anywhere in the world. Since stepping back from the hills, he's been involved in running the medical teams, covering two Commonwealth Games, a whole host of events, and now works for the Scottish Ambulance Service in Granton-on-Spey. Welcome, Eric. Thanks very much for joining us.
1: Hey, hi, Dave. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So we've kind of talked you into doing this, really, because I guess over the time spent involved in Mountain Rescue, you've probably been involved in more than your fair share of long jobs. And we wanted to pick your brains about this concept of prolonged field care. I guess to start with, could you give us an idea of what sort of things we're talking about here?
1: It's a tricky one, isn't it? And what do you define as a long job? I think it's going in with a mindset that you're going to be looking after this patient for as short a time as possible and God willing, handing over to more senior medical care very quickly, whether that's coming out of the sky or onto a roadside ambulance. If we think about the golden hour as being recognized in trauma care, particularly that timescale. But we're more thinking about prolonged care where it's several hours bleeding into double figures and even in our geographically small looking environment in scotland we've easily had six to 12 hour rescues in the Cairngorms due to location conditions once you start carrying somebody on a stretcher suddenly time just vanishes and thinking about the additional care that person needs is the terrain we're getting into
0: So I guess that really puts us into the bracket where a lot of responders, particularly those out on the highlands and islands, will recognize some of the features you're talking about. So patient care that isn't immediately available to them, and they're looking after patients for long periods of time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, on whether it's the West Coast or on some of the more remote islands, not knowing whether backup's going to be able to get to you from a logistical point of view, from a weather point of view, whether it's air or even sea state coming down to really bad weather. I've seen us on some of the Western Isles where it's, yeah, there's no question we're looking after this person until tomorrow at the best from an event point of view. Being in that situation regularly, I guess a lot of responders have got concerns, if not got plans and experience already. If they're new to that situation, then it's an exciting prospect.
0: (laughs) Exciting is one word for it. So what can we do ahead of time to prepare for a long job?
1: It's always the easy thing to say, isn't it? Prep and planning is the key. It's borne out all the time if you're at least prepared in mind and as much in the kit that you're likely to need, then suddenly when you hit the real situation, it's not as daunting. It's still maybe a big ask, but at least you've been there and you're not scratching around trying to find the things you suddenly discover you're going to need. So planning ahead, thinking about how am I going to deal with this patient for longer than I would hope to, whatever that time scale is. There are a number of good mnemonics, which we'll maybe come to later on, which are really good checklists and Using checklists is something that's more and more recognized as being a really helpful, competent thing to do rather than a cheat sheet. I don't like calling them cheat sheets because there's nothing cheating about it. It's especially helpful in situations that you don't come across regularly, maybe train occasionally, and you can pull out the checklist and go, "Yep, right, this is coming back to me instantly. So thinking about um, your normal med kit is going to be your normal med kit. That's what you've got. But thinking about quantities of kit, whether that's in your bag you can only carry a certain amount of stuff. But do you have spares in storage somewhere that you can ask somebody else to go and get to bring to the scene? Or are you considering taking the patient to an interim treatment area for want of the better word, holding area where at least you have some better shelter, better lighting, and it's much easier to manage the environment around about the patient in that respect. Equipment wise if we think of the basics first, I suppose it comes down to nursing care in a way that suddenly we're looking after a patient for the sort of length of time you would expect them to be in a hospital setting. So their hygiene, they will have needs for bodily function. It's always the one in the back of the ambulance you can kind of ask your patients, well, can you just hang on a little bit longer or you sort of skim over the topic and hope it goes away. That is no longer the case. You have to address the fact that they will need to pass urine, they will need to defecate, and you need to help them with that. But it's also really useful information and vital in terms of fluid balance to have a way of measuring urine output particularly, but also having enough materials that you can clean somebody up and maintain their skin hygiene for the long term, hence cutting down infection. If you've done things to them, if you've put in IV lines, then thinking about managing that from an infection control point of view. And on it goes, you know, thinking about pressure points, pressure sores. Have you got enough padding to support them? Are they on a scoop? Are they on a stretcher? Are they on a vacuum mattress? Would be We're fortunate we've used vac mats for a very long time in Mountain Rescue and we have them on board ambulances. But I don't think they get used a huge amount because people are thinking, well, I'll be in hospital very quickly. Whereas from a prolonged care point of view, they're going to help. But once you go over a few hours, you're still considering pressure points depending on the patient's orientation. So the notion that we're starting to roll people managing their spine, managing their query fractured pelvis, they are supported, but we're putting them into a more comfortable position without compromising that mechanical protection. And we're doing that regularly so that they're not continually lying on the same pressure points.
0: That's fantastic. You've brought out a lot of things that are pretty far outside of the comfort zone of a lot of pre-hospital practitioners. I guess the next thing I want to look at is maybe almost psychology. You know, we drill and train for that first 10, 15, 20 minutes where we're doing lots of interventions. How do you manage that psychological shift between the acute phase and going into that prolonged field care mindset?
1: I think there's usually a short interval of flat spin realisation that I'm not going to be able to hand this person over to the person in the red suit or the person in the green suit. or It doesn't really matter what colour they're appearing in. It's just somebody who's going to take that patient to definitive care. And you get to the mindset that that isn't going to happen. So what happens now? Oh, yes, right. I'm the person that's going to make a difference for this patient. So again, I think one of the things, and it's almost a top tip, is I would go into every job not expecting it to be finished in an hour, two hours, as quickly as possible, given the location of the patient. So if you you go into it expecting it to be prolonged, then it's less of a psychological shift when you reach that point and go, hmm, yep, it's going to be one of these. It might be a long day, a long night.
0: That's really interesting. It's something that I certainly don't do routinely. And I always get to that awkward pregnant pause when I think, oh, I've done everything and don't really know where to go next. You mentioned mnemonics and things earlier. What do you use to try and keep you right when you reach the end of that familiar a to e process?
1: There's a few things, Dave. I found the resource online that gives me the most help is the Prolonged Field Care website, the link to which is attached to this podcast on the website. A really short, snappy one is Hitman, where I've already spoken about, I guess, some of the main topics, but working your way through it really picks out the key things that treatment-wise you're going to focus on to keep your patient as well as you possibly can. There are a number of others. There's something called Ravines, which, again, it's quite American, but it lends itself a little bit towards more critical care and broad headings. And there's a particularly nice one for the Scottish Highlands, I think which works to sheet vomit, and it doesn't sound the best of things for looking after patients long term, but it really goes into the nitty gritty, particularly the nursing care in more austere environments. And it's not the sort of mnemonic that you just rattle off and remember everything. And I have a challenge with them. Sometimes it's hard enough to remember what the letters stand for, let alone the information it's supposed to remind you of. But at least from a preparation point of view, working through those various mnemonics gives you good ideas and good models to prep your kit to think about the additional stuff you might have in a separate bag stuffed in the corner of a cupboard or in your car wherever how you respond that if this is going to be a long job i know i've got that extra grab bag that's going to buy me a bit more comfort and time for me to get maybe some extra folks involved to bring more kit or get us to a location where it's a bit more comfortable to work for everybody
0: and i right in saying that sheep vomit? covers i guess the stuff that we would normally do for ourselves in the course of a day moving around looking after our skin keeping ourselves clean and healthy eating drinking passing urine passing faeces but it's just sort of a way of working through it so that we're doing it to the patient
1: yeah absolutely it is all the sort of things that i would reckon somebody who's used to working in a more remote or rural environment would think about but in that pregnant pause as you put it the realization comes that help's not arriving transport is not coming today maybe tomorrow if we're lucky then it's in a really nice format and it adds to it a little it covers the acts of daily living and that's a really good way of thinking about it what do you normally do in your normal day of living and okay we're not talking about a normal physiology we're recognizing that this is a person who is unwell and their physiology is compromised in some way however the normal bodily functions are going to pretty much continue and take their course no matter how we try to stop them. Some things will not wait. And it does give you good pointers towards thinking about how to deal with those and maybe some of the softer skills as well.
0: I guess one of the things that comes out of seeing patients in intensive care is it's really the mundane stuff that prolongs stays. It's not dealing with pressure ulcers. It's not thinking about DVT really early in their care that actually extends their care and causes more mobility down the line.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we definitely want to be handing over a patient in the best condition we can possibly manage, given the the situation. If I reflect back on the earlier years of a long time ago, and I can just about remember them, in MR to get a patient onto a stretcher and get them off the hill was what we were focused on. And anything else was very much a bonus. I don't think anybody will contradict me on that. And we maybe cringe a little bit and looking back at what we could have done. For our patients, but we got them off the mountain and they were still alive. Certainly, I go into it with a different mindset now where I want this person to be in as good condition as I can possibly make them, given the conditions that I'm in. And sometimes the best you can do is to get them out of the situation and the environment they're in to somewhere they're going to get better care. Because physically, the conditions round about you just mean that that's the best you can do. And that's something sometimes we just have to accept.
0: What about starting to sort of think about symptom control over time? Any sort of top tips for, I guess, doing some of the more medical stuff longer term?
1: That's where I hope somebody like yourself is kneeling next to me at the stretcher. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, I definitely. If I could, I would phone a friend. I am not a doctor. I will never be a doctor, and I hugely value the additional knowledge and experience that we have around about us. Now, whether that's one of your team docs, whether that's if it's not a team situation, you're a A remote GP, then the local A&E consultants that you, you normally work with and know having those relationships, having formed those relationships that you can lift the phone and go, hey, dude, yeah, I've got a little question for you here. It'll be a bit of a challenge. That's something that I'll do regularly to help me with those kind of challenges. We recognize that from a, let's pluck something out there in terms of, say, fluid resuscitation, there's a big topic. We could speak all day about that on its own. And the changes in thinking over the years, good thing is now there's no point in me carrying lots of salty water because in trauma we're not routinely adding lots of it because it tends to make things worse. But if we've got somebody who's grossly dehydrated, how am I going to get their fluid balance back up so that that doesn't become their major complaint rather than their lower tib fracture, which is not really going to cause us a lot of problems perhaps. So thinking about, do I need to add fluids? Do I not need to add fluids? Which patients do I want to keep as normotensive as possible? Perhaps the head injured. Can I use posture to help me with that? Can I put them in a slightly more head-up situation than I would normally do? For somebody who had a lower level of consciousness, all that sort of thing, it's very much minimal invasive tools that I have available to me in my mountainside environment, which suddenly becomes a little bit different if I bring it into a more roadside clinical situation where, yes, I can give IV fluids, et cetera, but do I want to? And what's the best course of action long-term for that patient? What could I be giving them? Can they take food and fluid orally? A lot of people not. Am I giving them fluids to add energy as well as just keep them hydrated? And am I measuring their fluid output at the same time?
0: The question of fluids is definitely one that is a huge headache. And I think we're going to try and get one of the intensive care docs to give us a bit of an update on, I guess, what the current thinking is and and what our best guess is to how we should be looking after these folk. What about when you are stuck with a patient despite your best efforts is deteriorating? And now, I mean, it's a hugely stressful situation. Any top tips, suggestions, things that you've developed over the years to help you deal with that?
1: It's a really hard one, isn't it? It's a very emotive topic and it must be. I think noted right now that many of our colleagues in the healthcare profession are dealing with this many times every day, many times more than they would normally do. And my heart goes out to them. It's never easy. Personally, I don't think that it ever gets any easier. The day that it gets easier, I would be very worried for myself. And without getting too philosophical here, I think recognizing that you've done everything you can do, and I'm one of those kind of people that would always question could I have done more, could I have done it differently? What should I have done that I didn't do? But having the reality of, you know, I did my best. And actually, that has to be good enough because I did my absolute best for my patient. Talking about it definitely helps me, but it's a very, very personal thing. And I think there's loads of theories on it. I don't know how much evidence there is because we're all different. Having experienced that situation in different settings many times now, I find, Talking about it definitely helps, but not dwelling on it. And it's having good friends round about you, good colleagues round about you, who recognize he's still talking about this, but it's not because he's getting it off his chest or getting some sort of relief from it. It's because he's dwelling on it. And that also can be a really negative thing. Being honest and realistic about expectations and going into situations without the underpants on the outside of the trousers, I think, is maybe one of the the better ways of dealing with it in that I can do what I can do and I'm going to do my absolute best and I'm going to do everything I can to get this person to the next level of care in a condition that they've got the best chance going forward. Sometimes you go into a situation thinking this may well not have a good outcome and sometimes it creeps up on you and it's a surprise and you deal with it as you go along. I'm reflecting on one or two instances where I wasn't in a work situation. I was there just as as me. Conditions were suboptimal, equipment was non existent, or expectations where there would be stuff there that wasn't. And that's the hardest thing to deal with. You're expecting a piece of equipment that might be life saving to be there and it isn't. It gets taken away from you for whatever reason. And that's really hard to deal with. And I think long term, those are the things that are hard to deal with. So Swinging right back to our planning and preparation is like knowing that I prepared my kit, I had everything that I could possibly reasonably and realistically have available is helpful at the other end of the spectrum when you're dealing with a dying person, somebody who dies in your care. And at least you can say, well, I did my best. I had everything I would have been expected to have to deal with that situation. And ultimately, the outcome has been negative, but we did what we could. And we looked after that person. I touched on the softer side too, thinking about, if I may, just going back to the symptom control. You know, something we've been, we've been focused on, maybe fairly hard skills, kits, equipment, but talking to people, reassuring. You know, it's TLC, it's back to my dear wife talks about being a granny. Think about your granny. How would you like somebody else to look after your granny? It's that sort of stuff that often makes a massive difference and patients down the line remember your voice because it was there for the entirety of the rescue and they connect with that and that's massively important and I think that helps too. You make that connection.
0: It's certainly quite profound how much that soft skill interaction really affects the patient down the line and their view of care isn't the injections and the drugs and the hard stuff that we carry checklists for. It's very much actually what you said and how you said it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Hugely important. Hugely important for lots of different reasons. But yeah, how you see things, but just being there and just being that connection for somebody.
0: So I guess the last thing I want to look at is a bit more about personal care in that prolonged field care environment. How do you look after yourself? I mean we train hard about how we treat our patients, but actually I guess this is one of the times when we need to divert a bit of attention onto our own care.
1: Absolutely. One of the golden rules of certainly of Mountain Rescue is don't become a second casualty. Your teammates will not Respond well to that. And it's very easy, isn't it? Your entire focus is on the injured patient, the person that you're looking after. We see it day to day with our colleagues round about. You know, it's very, very difficult with modern day workload to get breaks, to look after yourself, to get time to stop and just decompress a little bit, remembering to get fluids and food on board with the expectation, certainly in GP surgeries. That's difficult for docs to do just in the normal setting, let alone when they're up against it looking after somebody in a prolonged period. It may even be easier for them in this kind of setting where you can just go, right, great, we've got a pause in proceedings, everything's stable, I'm going to have a drink and a bite to eat. That's dependent on those things being available and how often do you grab the car keys, head out the door, make sure your PPE's in the car and your med kit's there and drive to... An incident, as a responder, did you take the time to pick up even a packet of biscuits, packet chocolate biscuits, if they're in the house, and something to drink to maintain your fluid intake? That's something that has to be habitual, and maybe there's a supply there ready if you're really sad like me. um, There's probably a goodie bag there that gets eaten far too regularly, because after all, if it's just emergency supplies, it goes out of date, and then it's not enjoyable when you have to eat it. But that, that's the kind of thing that needs to become habit, that you take some fluids and food with you.
0: Yeah, I've been guilty of getting halfway through a job and thinking, actually, I've got to the point where I'm so cold that I'm just not performing, my brain's shutting down because your focus is elsewhere.
1: I mean, that's a really good point, isn't it? You know, for our typical Scottish environment, I can't remember the last time it rained here at the moment. This is unusual. Eh? It's 22 degrees, beautiful, incredible weather. However, the normal for us is if we're out on jobs, whether it's roadside or in the mountains, is it's cold, usually sub-zero. So you might have wrapped up your patient really well, but have you used all your spare kit to do that? Did you bring kit for the patient and spare kit for yourself? Again, there's a limit to what you can carry, but thinking about other people and backup logistics, where's that kit coming from? I think we could do a full podcast on organising equipment (laughs) nothing else.
0: Don't, or we'll volunteer (laughs) you. Great. I mean, that's fantastic, and we've covered a lot of ground there. I guess to round off, can I get you to give us three top tips that we can have in our minds when we're thinking about prolonged field care?
1: Mm. And they're maybe being typically me, they're not hugely medical, I guess, but we've spoken about this before. Top tip, ultimate piece of equipment, for bad moments is a group shelter a bothy bag a bivy shelter whatever you want to call it they're not standard issue in frontline ambulances they're standard issue in mountain rescue they're standard kit that an outdoor instructor would take whether that's paddling or walking or ski touring but having a large-ish group shelter that you can get a patient supine plus Four people in underneath. It takes a wee bit of getting practiced at using, but that is a brilliant additional bit of kit that you probably won't find immediately
0: round about you. Can you just describe for folk who haven't seen them before what they don't like?
1: Absolutely. It's a tent without poles. How's that? It's a kind of typically a dome shape piece of ripstop nylon or similar material that doesn't have the need for poles. You, The bodies inside create the structure, and it's just a way of taking the wind away from the environment. It keeps the rain out for a short while, perhaps. It definitely increases the ambient temperature inside the shelter because you're sharing body heat, but you're cutting the wind chill factor. Fantastic life-saving bit of kit and not something that's usually on scene where you think this would be really useful to have one of those just now. So that's top tip number one. Something I do at work regularly is I have a head torch in my pocket it may not be dark when you start but sure as eggs are eggs is it's probably going to get dark through the process because again we're thinking about being in the north of Scotland so I've got a head torch great thing is LED head torches they're small they're really bright for their size and the batteries last for a long long time so you don't have to worry too much about spare bulbs and batteries and all that shenanigans nowadays. And number three touches on to the how you look after yourself is I always stuff snacks into my pockets maybe not so many chalky bars things like that because they will melt but um, whatever your chosen preference is whether it's cereal bars or flapjack or cashew nuts whatever floats your boat but having some form of energy for you squirreled away in your pockets means that it's dead easy just to go oh i'll quickly i'll plug some energy back in
0: Eric, that's fantastic. Really sage advice. And there's a lot of things there that I know that I'm not good at doing. And uh, certainly that self-care is definitely up there. Many, many thanks for coming in to chat to us. And yeah, we will continue this conversation with a few more dips into prolonged field care in future podcasts. Eric, thanks again.
1: Hey, thank you very much, Dave. Absolute pleasure.